You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. To those of you online here with us on Zoom, thank you so much for joining us. Those of you here in person, hey, Jay, it's great to see you. And uh, those of you who are online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, link, LinkedIn, wherever you are, thank you for joining us. All right, so we're in the middle of the, the heavy discussion of what happened when the Jewish people were in Egypt. What was going on behind the verses, behind the words that are written in the Torah portion talking about the Jewish people and their challenges in Egypt? We get to see the behind-the-scenes story. Okay, the Gemara turns to the next clause in this verse describing the birth of Moses and cites several views as to its meaning. Batera oso ki tovhu. She saw that he was good. He was tov. Tanya, we learned in Nebraisa, Rabbi Meir, Omer Rabbi Meir says, Tov Shmo, Tov was Moses' name. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, Tuvya Shmo, his name was Tovya. Rabbi Nechemia Omer, Rabbi Nechemia says, the word Tov signifies that Moses was Hagun Lenevius. He was fit for prophecy. Acherim, Omrim, others say it means Nolad Keshu Mohul, that he was born already circumcised. And the sages say, When Moses was born, the entire house filled with light. This may be derived from Shava, from a parallel verse. It says here, it's written here, It says that she saw that he was good. And it says over there, God saw the light was good. So this is the proof from our sages, from the rabbis, who say that what does it really mean that she saw it was good? Good means there's light. Ah, when Moshe was born, the world filled up with light. But more than that, it was his room, the room he was in, the house he was in, was filled with light. So we know that Moshe had multiple names. Tovya was one of his names as well. Tov was one of his names. This light that filled the home was the light of the six days of creation that God hid away for the righteous in the future. God allowed that this light to shine for Moshe for the first three months of his life. And then when he arrived at Pharaoh's house, it was taken away from him until Moses stood at Mount Sinai and God restored it to him. So this special light that filled up, we always say, yeah, baby's born, it brings light to the family, not, not, not in a spiritual sense alone. This was an actual physical light. There was a light that, that was piercing. There was a light that was radiant that came from Moshe. Moshe wasn't an ordinary individual. Moshe was a very, very unique character. Moshe, as we mentioned not long ago in one of our classes, that Moshe was eulogized in the, in the most interesting way. Only two words. And Moshe died, servant of God. Eved Hashem. Two words. Because everything in Moshe's life was about God. 
There was no me. He was devoid of all selfishness, of all. We see this also. Our sages tell us something very interesting about Moshe. Why did Moshe, at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, Moshe hits the rock instead of talking to the rock? I mean, Moshe is a pretty fine character. Moshe knew what he was doing. Why did he decide to hit the rock instead of talking to the rock? So there are many commentaries about this. And Moshe was, again, Moshe is no, no child. Moshe is not like one of us. Moshe was the greatest prophet ever. He knew what he was doing. He didn't slip up. Oh, oh what a mistake. I should have, could have, would have. No, he did it on purpose. Why did he do it? So I saw one of the beautiful commentaries on this is that Moshe knew that the way in which he will die will be the inheritance for the Jewish people. And he foresaw that the Jewish people will live in exile for a very, very long time. And if he enters the land of Israel, then they'll forever have the land of Israel. But if he doesn't enter the land of Israel, he's going to die with a yearning for Israel. He's going to die with a desire to go back to the land of Israel. He says, that's what I want my inheritance to my descendants, to my, to the Jewish people. That's what I want their inheritance to be. That yearning, that desire to go back to our homeland. That's what I want them to have. That's what I want them to go their entire existence with. I want that to be their inheritance. The Jewish people shouldn't merit to be in the land alone, but rather they should merit to have the yearning to go back to the land of Israel. So you know what's really amazing? Any of our grandparents would do anything in the world just to go back to Israel. Why? Why is it so important for them to go back to Israel? What's the big deal? Do you see someone who leaves Romania say, oh, I can't wait to go back to Romania? No, they're happy. I'm happy in America. Leave me alone. Do you see anyone who says, oh, bring me back to Mother Russia? No, you don't see that. Anywhere in the world. Take the Jew out of Eretz Yisrael. Take the Jew out of the land of Israel. Oh, I can't wait to go back. I can't wait to go back. My mother, may she live and be well. If you wake her up at three in the morning and say, we're going to Israel, she's like, okay, let's, let me just get my stuff together. Go. No questions asked. Oh, what? Israel, why, why, would, why are we going? It's like if I said, okay, we, if I woke you up at three in the morning and said, we're going to Toronto, Canada, you'd be like, what? We're going, we're going to Israel? No problem. Let's go. Get our bags. We're out. Why? Because that's the inheritance we got from Moshe a forever yearning to be back in our homeland. Moshe, who was the most selfless person ever to live, was ready to give up his entrance into the land of Israel so that his children, his grandchildren, his descendants will forever have that yearning to go back into the land of Israel. And we talk about Moshe, the light of the Jewish people. Wow, that's incredible. So listen to this. The Gemara now continues. We said three months there was light. We just brought from the commentaries here. He says, She, Yochevet, his mother, hid him for three months. 
Delo Manu Mitzrayim El the Ahadra. Because the Egyptians who were enforcing the decree to kill the, the baby boys began counting the nine months of pregnancy only from the moment that Amram remarried Yocheved. But she had been pregnant with Moshe for three months already. So they missed the boat on when Moshe was going to be born. And she could no longer hide him. Why not? Why couldn't she hide him? Let her continue to hide him. She should hide him for six months, for eight months, for, you know, three years, like Abraham. Ella, rather, it was impossible for her to do so. For wherever the Egyptians heard that a baby was born, they would bring an Egyptian baby there. So that they would hear each other and cry together. And these babies who were the cause of the Jewish tragedy are alluded to in Scripture, as it says, God said to the sea, Grab for us foxes, the small foxes, who spoiled the vineyards when our vineyards, meaning our babies, had just begun to blossom. So what did they do when they brought the Egyptian babies? The Egyptian babies would cry. What happens when a baby hears a baby cry? It cries too. So that way they were able to find all the Jewish babies and then kill them. So it got to a point that she was no longer able to hide her baby because her baby would inevitably cry because of the Egyptian babies. The Gemara continues, tevas goma. She took for her, for him a wicker basket. Maishna goma, why wicker and not something stronger like wood? Amar Rabbi Elazar. Rabbi Elazar said, Mikan latzadikim shemamonam chaviv alem yosem From here we may derive that the property of the righteous is dearer to them than their own bodies. She chose wicker because it was less expensive. We'll see this in a minute. We'll see the commentaries on this. And why do the righteous care so much about their property? Because their hands never touch stolen money. Whatever they have is theirs honestly and is therefore precious to them. Rabbi Shimon Banachmani Omer, Rabbi Shimon Banachmani says, she used wicker for a basket because it was davarach. It was soft material. She yachol lamod it was soft material that would be able to withstand a confrontation with either a soft object or a hard object when it was in the water, right? So when it was in the water, it was able to withstand a big wave or a small wave. By the way, the harder something is, the easier it is for it to break. The softer something is, the more flexible it is, and it doesn't break on impact. But if Yochevet had fashioned the basket out of wood, it would have been 
liable to break upon a rock because it's very, very strong. If it hit a rock, it would crack. The Gemara continues. Oh, one second. Let's just uh, read a little bit of the commentaries of this idea that the righteous, their property, their possessions, their money is dearer to them than their own bodies. Commentary says, clearly, her baby would be fully protected in a wicker basket or in a wooden basket. However, it stands to reason that since wood is stronger than wicker, a wooden basket would provide an extra measure of security. Ben Yoyad explains, certainly the righteous did not hold their property property dearer than their lives. Nothing is more precious than life. Rather, the principle means that the righteous are willing to sustain temporary minor discomfort rather than incur expenses to avoid them. Thus, we find that the Amora Abachilkia preferred to expose his shins to thistles rather than cover them with a garment that would become ripped. Meaning, I'm ready to incur a little bit of pain now to prolong the life of my possessions, then minimize that discomfort and minimize the length of the possession. Okay, so the idea is it's basically giving us an insight to what are the values. Are the values that you... The idea here is not that our righteous people are busy with counting their money and protecting their money. That's not what it's about. It's the idea is that they value the gift that God gives them that they don't waste it. They don't waste it. Your body can get healed. Right? So if you get a little a little uh, scratch, it, it can heal itself. And it's a temporary thing. Okay, so now the Gemara continues. And it says, And she smeared it with clay and tar. Tanya, Tana, the Brisa was taught, the clay was in the inside and the tar was on the outside. Why? Why did she put the tar on the outside and clay on the inside? So that the righteous person, Moses, would not smell a foul odor of tar. Tar has a very putrid smell, a very strong smell. She didn't want Moshe, a righteous person who's going to soon be speaking with the Almighty, where God will speak mouth to mouth with Moses, direct conversation. The Gemara continues, She placed the child into it, into the basket, and placed it in the suf. Rebbe Lezer says, This suf, Yam suf. What is suf? It's the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds. Now we turn to 12b. says, Agam, the verse means she placed the basket in a marsh among the reeds and willows, which is called Suf. As it is written, the reeds and the thin willows, Suf, will wither. 
The Gemara continues, Pharaoh's daughter went down to wash herself by the river. Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon Ben-Yochai, This teaches that she went down to the river in order to wash herself from her father's idols. She went to immerse herself in the river as an act of conversion to monotheism. And we find similarly that someone who repents and cleanses himself from the sins is called washed, as it says, When my Lord will have cleansed the filth of the daughters of Zion. And that's referring to them cleansing themselves of sin. The Gemara continues, After the verse in Exodus says that Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river, to cleanse herself, it continues, and her maidens were walking holchos along the river. Why does the Torah mention that they were walking? Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, Ein halicho misa. This walking is none other than an expression of drawing close to death. The maidens were about to do something for which they would deserve death. V'cheinu Omer, and similarly, we find that the term walking is used in the sense of drawing close to death, as it says, Ani, Hine, Anochi, Holech, Lamus. Look, I am going, I'm Holech, I'm walking to die. And this is referring to Asaph. He says, I'm, I'm going to die anyway, right? So might as well maximize, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you'll die. And that was the the tagline of Esav as well. The Gemara continues, And she saw the daughter of Pharaoh, Batya, she saw the basket among the reeds. Once the maiden saw that Pharaoh's daughter wished to rescue Moses, they protested. They said to her, Our lady, the following is the norm of the world. When the flesh and blood king issues a decree, if the entire world does not observe it, at least his children and the members of his household can be counted on to observe it. You are violating your father's decree? The angel Gabriel gave them, came to them, and struck the maidens to the ground, thus disposing of them. So they were actually put to death by the angel Gabriel. The Gemara continues, And she, Pharaoh's daughter, sent forth her ama and fetched it, the basket. Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Nechemia disputed the meaning of the word Amma. What does Amma mean in this verse? Chad Amar Yoda. One says it was her arm. She stretched out her arm to take hold of the basket. Vecham Amar Shifchasa. One said it means her maidservants. Pharaoh's daughter went, sent one of the maid, maidens to retrieve the basket. Manda Amar Yoda, according to the opinion that it was her hand, Dechsev Amasa is because the verse says her ama 
An ama is a term of one's arm. Uman de armer shifchasa. And the one who says that ama means her maiden, her maidservant, he says, midolok siv yada. Because the verse says ama and not yada. Yada means hand, actually. So from there, that opinion derives that it was actually her maidservant and not her hand. The Gemara asks, Zulamanda Amr Shifchas, according to the opinion that says that she sent her maidservant, Ha Amris, but you said before that, Ba Gavriel Vechavatan Bakarka. Didn't you just say that Gavriel came, the angel Gabriel came and struck the maidens to the ground and they all died? So who remained for Pharaoh's daughter to send? Who was there? The Gemara answers, The Shire Lochad. He says that Gabriel left her one maidservant, one maiden. Because in any case, it is not proper for a princess, for a princess to stand alone. The Gemara asks further, according to the opinion that, to the opinion that it was her hand, so why doesn't the verse say that it was actually her hand? Why does it use a different language that's not typically used for talking about a hand? The Gemara answers, This is what we learn. This is what we learn from this. The Ishtarbev Ishtarbuve, that her own arm extended miraculously far in reaching for the basket. We have a tradition that such a miracle took place, the Amamar for the master said in reference to Ahasuerus' scepter that lengthened miraculously when Esther came in after being for a very long time not being called into the presence of the king. And he stretched out his scepter and you had to touch the scepter in order to be granted life. And the scepter extended all the way out to the end of the room where Esther had walked in. That was also an extension. So we see that this miracle happened. And you find a similar miracle with regard to the arm of Pharaoh's daughter. And you find a similar miracle with regard to the teeth of the wicked. As it says, the teeth of the wicked you have broken. Says, Do not read it as Shibarta that you have broken, but rather Sheribavta that you have extended. God lengthened the teeth of the wicked in a historical incident in order to forestall disaster for the Jewish people. So we see that this type of extension was granted in the past, and therefore we know. Or, throughout history as a miracle for the Jewish people. So here too, her hand was a miracle, is an extended hand so that she can reach all the way into the reeds and extricate Moshe from the sea. The Gemara continues, She opened it and saw the child. The verse says simply, she opened it and saw the child. Um, Rabbi Yossi said in the name of Rabbi Hanino, 
The phrase, she saw him, the child mean, saw him, the child, means Shirasa Shechina Imo. She saw, what did she see? She saw the Shechina, the divine presence, together with the child. It was suddenly, whoa, something out of the ordinary is happening here. The Gemara continues, And behold, the child, the youth, was crying. Earlier, the Torah called him a child. Now, it calls him, which could mean an infant. And here, the Torah calls him a youth, implying an older person. So which one is it? Was he a little baby? Or was he a youth, a little bit older? What's going on? Why does the Torah, we know this from our Partial Review podcast, every single week, we list exactly how many letters, how many words, and how many verses. Why? Because there's not an extra word, not an extra letter, not an extra verse in the Torah. So if the Torah is telling us specifically that there was a baby, and then it tells us that there was a youngster, which one is it? Tana, a brisa was taught that explains this apparent contradiction. Who yelled vikolo kinar? He was an infant, but his voice was like that of a youth. Because if you look at the word, it says, she saw the baby, she saw the child, but then it says, it was the youth was crying. The youth was crying. What does that tell you? His voice, his voice was not the voice of an infant. It was the voice of that of a youth. Divi Rabbi Yehuda, that's what Rabbi Yehuda says. Amr Lord Rabbi Nechemi, Rabbi Nechemi said to Rabbi Yehuda, Im Kain, if so, that his voice was abnormally deep. Asiso l'Moshe Rabbeinu Balmum, then you made Moshe into a possessor of a defect. What baby has a deep voice? What baby has a voice of a grown adult? Since Moses was a Levite, he was supposed to participate in the temple service by singing but an abnormally deep voice would disqualify him from doing so. Elamalamed, rather, the word youth teaches us, teaches us that Moses' mother, Yocheved, fashioned for him in the basket a canopy of youth, a symbolic chuppah, or wedding canopy. Amra, where she said to herself, Shema lo so perhaps I will not merit to see his actual chuppah. So I want to decorate his little basket here that it should have a chuppah so that I shouldn't miss out on that special life cycle event. Commentaries here say that this was an expression of her despair. Yocheved did not, in fact, see Moses' chuppah since he got married in Midian. Thus, our Gemara presents two ways to resolve the contradictory references to Moses as an infant and as a youth. Rabbi Yehuda says that Moses was an infant, but his voice was as deep as a youth voice, a youth's voice. Rabbi Nehemiah agrees that Moses was an infant, but he was treated like a youth and that he was covered with a symbolic wedding canopy. With a symbolic wedding canopy. The Midrash offers a third resolution. The words, and behold, a youth was crying, do not refer to Moses at all, but rather to Aaron, who was about three years old at the time. 
Aaron was crying in dreaded anticipation of Moses' impending doom in the water. So it wasn't even Moses who was crying. She heard Aaron crying because he was concerned for the well-being of his brother. The Gemara continues, The daughter of of Pharaoh took pity on Moses. She said, This baby is one of the Hebrew boys. From where did she know that? says because she looked and she saw that he was circumcised. So she says, ah, this has to be one of the Jewish babies. So the Gemara turns to the end of Pharaoh's daughter's statement. One of the Hebrews' boys, this is. Zeh, this one. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan said, Melamed Shalomidata. The words, this one, teach us that she prophesied unconsciously. She didn't know. Unknowingly, she declared a prophecy. This one has fallen into the river, but no other baby will again have to fall into the river. That's what she was saying. Meaning, she implied without thinking that the decree that was that male infants be thrown into the river would be abolished that day. That is precisely what happened because the astrologers no longer foresaw a threat. They said, ah, the storm has passed. We don't see that vision of that baby being born because the baby was born already, how long? Three months earlier. Behind the Rebbe And this bears out what Rebbe Lazar said in regard to those astrologers. yomru aleichem. What is the meaning of that which is said, if people say to you, Darshu al ha'avos ve'al ha'yidonim, inquire of the necromancers and the diviners. Ha'metzav tzifim u'mahagim. Ve'hamagim. Who chirp and vocalize. Tzofim ve'enon yodin ma'tzofim. They envision future events, but they don't know what they envision. Mahagim ve'enum yodim ma mahagim. They vocalize, but do not know what they are vocalizing. Meaning, they have a vague idea of what they are divining, but not a well-defined picture. Meaning, they they see we see something, but they don't know how to make sense of it. They don't know how to connect to it in a in a spiritual, godly way. And many times, this is why our sages tell us. And we'll end with this little piece here. You have to be so careful about the words you use because you don't want your words to be used as a prophecy against you. I'll give you a, a story to illustrate this. My, grand, my father grew up in a small little village in Israel and there was a man who every morning would go leave his house at a certain time and get onto the train, and he was like clockwork. Every day, he'd be at his job at a certain time, clock in, clock out when he was done, and he was known. This guy was like clockwork. Hey, you know, imagine 6 o'clock he leaves, 6.15 he's at the train, 6.45 he's at his office, and he starts work. One day, he goes to the train, and for whatever reason, he wasn't feeling well, and... 
He goes back home, uses the restroom, goes back to the bus station, not feeling well again, comes back, goes back to the restroom. His wife says, everything okay? He says, don't worry, this time I'm not coming back. And indeed, he was in an accident and never came back. A person needs to be careful about the words they say. I want to share with you another amazing story. How careful we need to be about the words we say. By the way, I drive my kids crazy about this. Okay, like I'll give you an example. Like before they travel, they're like, okay, I'm not going to see you anymore. So goodbye. I'm like, no, no, no. You're not going to see me anymore before you fly on this trip. But you'll see me many more times. So the idea is you got to don't leave it hanging out there. An amazing story. There was a woman reporter, a secular woman, female reporter, who heard that Rabbi Vadi Yosef, who was the great Chacham, the great Sephardic rabbi in Israel, that he was giving rulings, special uh, rights, that if a woman had an issue she didn't know where her husband was, then in certain cases he would allow the woman to get remarried to someone else because... You know, if he was in a in an earthquake and he wasn't heard of heard from in in a certain amount of time, he would give certain rulings. Obviously, all based in Jewish law, and that's this is something that shouldn't be decided by any individual person. Speak to a bona fide rabbi who knows Torah, knows halacha, knows Jewish law to make such decisions. Really, like the World Trade Center, like the people who never found it, not even a remnant of them. What do you What do you do? Can their wives get remarried? They're called an aguna. Big, big, big problem. People who go out to battle don't come back. What do we do? In any event, so this woman comes to the rabbi and she wanted to show, and this was her intention, is to show that the rabbi is just, you know, doesn't know what he's doing and the rabbi is just, you know, making these rulings and so on and so forth. So she goes in and makes up a story. She says, Rabbi, and she's, again, a reporter, undercover reporter. She goes to the rabbi, and she makes some, fabricates some story. And the rabbi is listening very intently. And he hears the story. He says, okay, one second, one second. He asks her a few questions to verify details. And then he says, okay, say the story again. And she says the story again. And again, he verifies details. And he says, no problem, you can get married. And she was absolutely like, wow, I I just fooled the rabbi. It turned out, as soon as she left the rabbi's house, she got a phone call in which they told her, we're very sorry to inform you, but your husband just had a heart attack and died. And it was sort of like she was prophesying and not knowing what she's prophesying. And it's, we have to be so careful. I'll never see you again. Don't say that. I'm going, I'm not coming back. Oh, I saw that and I died. People use all of these expressions. You have to be so careful. We have to be so careful with every word that we use because those words can be taken by the angels, the negative angel, and say in front of, look, it was, it was already a prophecy. We should bring it to action. Hashem should bless us that we should always be careful with our words. We should always be on the side of the greatest news in the world. 
We should always be on the side of being having clarity and having a revelation of God's presence right before our eyes. Hashem should bless us with an amazing Shabbos.